Um, but today, we're in Philippians 4, second to last sermon. We're hitting the famous, the most famous, I think, Philippian verse, and that is verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you Google this, you will see this, these words kind of typed out over pictures of people climbing mountains and winning football games and maybe even getting some dividends on a good investment, right? It is one of the uh, most misused verse is in the scripture. It's often used to spiritually justify our covetousness, being a star, being important, being healthy or wealthier, etc. But really, it's funny, this verse pushes us towards the opposite in its context. In its context, this verse actually pushes us towards our topic for the morning, which is contentment. This verse pushes us towards contentment. So let's just start with a convicting question. Right, gear up, here it is. It's gonna, it's gonna sting. Are you content? Are you content this morning? Are you content where you are? Are you content in who's around? Are you content with what you have? Most people, the answer is no. I'll tell you this, if you wanna be different, right, you wanna really stand out, be content. Say, I have enough money. I have enough possessions. I'm content with my opportunities. I'm content with the amount of free time I get. I am content with how many followers I have online. You want to rebel against the culture. You want to go against the grain. You want to start a revolution. Be content. Because nobody else is doing that. Nobody's being that. We live in a world. We live in a culture where you can be anything you want to be except for content. According to a Gallup poll this year, 2022, they surveyed a bunch of Americans across 29 aspects of life. Only about 38% of Americans said that they were generally satisfied with life. And this is a particularly interesting statistic when you consider the fact that we have 30.2% of the entire world's wealth, 13 more percent than the next country, which is China. They have 17% of the world's wealth. So we got 30% of the world's wealth, and only 30-ish percent of us are happy. Just a fascinating thing to note. And it's not just America, by the way. This is a worldwide pandemic and epidemic. Uh, there was a group out of Paris, France, large marketing research firm. They did something really uh, interesting called the World Happiness Study. Huge reports published online. Um, and they found that only 14% of people in the world would classify themselves as very happy. 14%. So what about you? Are you content? Here's some good news. Because of Jesus, you can be. By his life, his blood, his death, his resurrection, his Holy Spirit, his strength, you can be content. How do we know? Well, because Paul was content, and my guess is he had it worse than you. Unless you're sitting in a Roman jail cell watching online. Which we all know that's not true. It's like... Miss Judy and my mom. So, um, 
He was content. And he learned how to do it. We could be content. Let's read about this. Philippians 4. Starts in verse 10. It's the context of Philippians 4.13. It says this in verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at last, your care for me has flourished again. Now, you surely did care. Like, you've always cared and you lacked opportunity. So, verse 10 starts with Paul rejoicing again. 104 verses in Philippians. 19 of them mention rejoicing. This is one of them. He rejoices that the Philippian church got a chance to give to his ministry. Now, they wanted to do it in the past, but they haven't had the opportunity until now. Here's the scenario, in case you're new here. Paul started the Philippian church a little over a decade before this moment, a little bit before this, right? A little over a decade before this. They loved him, they appreciated him, they cared about him. And after he started the church, in true Pauline fashion, he went out to start more churches, because you can't get this guy to slow down. It's like he's, he's like the guy in your neighborhood who drinks seven monsters a day, and it's just, you, know, you need a nap in a hospital, but he doesn't go and rest and relax. He goes as a missionary all throughout the Mediterranean, Asia Minor area, and then some planting churches. So the Philippian church, they want to support Paul as one of their missionaries, but they don't know where he is for years at a time. They cannot figure out where he is and what church he's starting and what he is doing. This is before you could text Paul. This was before you could you know, set up your giving online for reoccurring monthly donations. Like you actually had to send a dude with a bag of money to a person that was doing ministry in order to give. They couldn't figure out where to send the money. Well, eventually Paul does slow down because he's thrown in jail and he's shipped to Rome to await trial. And so finally, since he's staying in one spot for long enough, they hear where he is and they hear what he needs and they send a guy from their church, a great guy named Epaphroditus. He goes all the way from Philippi to Rome with a care package, money, change of clothes, toiletries, food, things like that. And this is an amazing, amazing thing. Like if you Google Maps this right now, which you can do, Philippi to Rome is a 20-hour drive plus a big, long ferry ride. This dude walked with a bag of money 2,000 years ago to give to the missionaries. It's pretty convicting, and that's a lot of love. It's a really amazing gesture for the Philippian church to do this for Paul. And so the Philippians send in this gift, and this letter, Philippians, is Paul's thank you note to them. But his thank you note is pretty interesting, isn't it? I mean, read verse 10 again, read it again. It says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at last, your care for me has flourished. Paul says, I'm grateful to God that at last you got a chance to give. Now that's kind of a funny way to say it, isn't it? Right, like imagine Christmas morning. Um, which I know some of you crazy people already are, right? Some of you already got pumpkins on the porch. You're going to Hobby Lobby. You're like, I can't wait for the holidays. You've already forgotten Thanksgiving, so I'll teach you for that. Because right? you're thinking through the fall and the winter, Christmas morning comes, your presents are wrapped, they're under the tree. Little kids, they wake up, they go down the stairs, they go, they, you know, they, they trash everything, they undo those boxes, they get out the presents, and there's your little boy, and he gets it out, whatever it is, and he smiles real big, and instead of saying, it's just what I always wanted, he smiles real big and says, it's just what you always wanted to give. It's curious. Curious way to say it, Paul. And that's what Paul's saying. 
So why is he doing it? Why does he talk this way in the context of Philippians 4.13? Why is he talking this way in verse 10? It's so that they know that the gift is good enough. It's so that they know that it's enough, whatever it is. So they don't have to worry, is Paul happy with our gift? Does he need more? Does he need it more often? He says, don't worry so much about the contents of the gift. I'm just glad you gave. That's a lot different than you and me. I don't know about you, I'd be a tad worried about the contents if I'm the one in jail. Right? Like, hey guys, thanks for the snacks. I, I love to snap into a Slim Jim. God, thanks for that. But you're going to need to send some more of those little show, the, what are the, hotel shampoos, okay? They don't have a lot of those here in the Roman jail cell. And um, a cot would be nice. I'm on the concrete. And I don't know if there's anyone who can share a Wi-Fi password or the new IT, uh, iPhone 14 that's coming out. I'd be worried about the content. But he, it's very interesting, does not seem overly concerned with the contents. He doesn't want them to be concerned with the contents of the gift because he's content without the gift, with the gift, already. Like, he's already got everything he needs in his Roman jail cell, in prison. He's content. Look at the verse coming up. That's 10. Let's look at 11. Not that I speak... In regard of need, right now worried about the contents. Why? I have learned, whatever state I am, to be content. Don't worry about the contents, because I'm content. Whatever state I find myself in, even chained to this guard, with thousands of my haters outside, rioting for my execution. It's a pretty bold statement. I want to be able to make this statement. I want you to be able to make this statement. I want us to be able to make this statement. I love this statement. I am content. I am content. Paul says, no matter what state I'm in, I am content. How does he make such a statement? Well, he does tell us it hasn't always been this way. Paul was not born content, and it's likely he was not born again content. He says in verse 11 that this is something that he has learned, indicating learned over time. He says it in a similar way in verse 12, I have learned to be content. And in the Greek, he's using these words that remind the first readers of the idea of learning something new, a mystery being revealed. Like he's saying, in a sense, I have found a secret, the secret of being content. After searching, I have learned. Over time, over days, spent searching, I've learned to be content. I want you to know this. You're either spending your days learning to be content or learning to be covetous. You're spending your days learning one of the two, to be content or to be covetous. Covetousness is taught everywhere. It is not a secret. It is not a mystery. It is not supernatural. It is on everything from billboards to TikTok. Covetousness, more, more, more. Covetousness is when we determine our thankfulness based on what we have and based on what we don't have. Contentment is when we're determined to be thankful solely based on the fact that we have Jesus. 
Covetousness is when we determine our thankfulness based on the circumstances we're in or the circumstances that we are not in. Contentment is when we are determined to be thankful solely based on the fact that we have Jesus. Covetousness is when we determine our thankfulness based on who's around or who's not around. Contentment is when we're determined to be thankful solely because Jesus is around. We're spending our days learning one or the other, covetousness or contentment. We learn covetousness most days. When we overspend, we learn covetousness when we refuse to give generously. We learn covetousness when we get angry with God. We learn covetousness whenever we value people based on what they can contribute. We learn covetousness when we hoard our me time. We learn covetousness whenever we're less than grateful for just Jesus. And all these things come naturally day after day. We learn them without even trying. We learn contentment when we go against what's natural and value something other than the natural, value the supernatural, value something other than this world, but a world that is to come, value something other than our throne, but a heavenly throne with a king seated on it who has died and bled and risen to save us and invite us to his throne to worship him. That means we are going to have to learn contentment through learning to accept and to expect and to adapt to whatever season of life we're in. Trusting Jesus is truly enough for us in every season. We're spending our days learning one or the other, covetousness or contentment. So here's our second convicting question for the morning. All right, I hit you with the jab. Here's the hook. What have you been learning? I don't know about you, but I want to learn contentment. It's one of those tough sermons where I have to preach on something I'm not actually doing, which is always conflicting. But I want to do it. I want to learn this. And it's going to take learning. It takes research, experimenting, studying, practicing to learn contentment. Not just our kids need to go back to school this time of year. We got to go back to school. And we got to major in contentment. Say, so how do you learn to be content? What do you need to learn to be content? Turn to Ecclesiastes 3. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 3. Our first class on this journey to learn contentment is Acceptance 101. Welcome. Here's your syllabus. It's Ecclesiastes 3. 1 through 8. Contentment starts with acceptance. Accepting that life is both favorable and unfavorable circumstances. Pleasant and unpleasant. Good and bad. You have to accept this. And I'm not even talking about some Eastern like yin and yang concept. This is just Bible. Ecclesiastes 3. You heard it there first. Learn to be content. You got to learn to accept. Ecclesiastes 3. One of the most famous poems, both in and outside of the Bible. Here's what it says. Let's just read verse 1 through 8. I know we know it, but let's read it again because it's so good for the soul to hear this inspired poem and the truth in it. To everything, there is a season. To every time and every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up. There is a time to weep. There is a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, 
and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get, a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to rend, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time for peace. If you go through Ecclesiastes 3, you'll notice there's a season for everything, and about half of them are negative. It's half and half. Half are easy, half are hard. About half are pleasant, and half are unpleasant. So here's just the basic biblical truth. If about half of your life, about 50%, is negative, difficult, complicated, that's called... Normal. It is not just you. Bad luck. God's vengeance. It's normal. At some point, you are going to have to learn to accept this is life because the Bible tells us this is life. Contentment starts with acceptance, looking at the negative in life and saying, that's normal, not abnormal, not intolerable, tolerable, that's life. Rather than constantly trying to change it in our covetousness, which inevitably leads to discontent. You need to learn to accept the almost opposite of something called the American dream. You are not only going to succeed, there is success and there is also failure. You are not only gonna be healthy and wealthy, there is health and wealth in life, and there's also difficulty and chaos. You have to start accepting this. And after you accept this, the next class is right down the hall. It's a similar class, it's called expectation. You have to ex not accept this, but expect this. Not just accept this, but expect this. Going back to this idea in Ecclesiastes 3, there being this time for everything, it's, it's stated like we said in a poem, and it's based in Hebrew on sevens, and to the Hebrew people, sevens especially was this idea of completeness. So this poem, one of the aspects of it is to show us that this is not only what a normal life is like, but this is what a whole life is like. A complete life has to have both or else you have nothing. Right, you can't love someone without having to lose something else. I can't get married to one and not, not marry everybody else or else it's not marriage. I can't dedicate myself to being a father to some kids without having to say I can't be a father to the three billion kids that make up the planet. Something is going to be given and something is going to be taken in this broken world. We need to learn to expect that, to literally, as we start seasons, look at the season, whether it's good or bad, and expect something to come from it. So if it's a good season, expect there to be some bad in it. If it's a bad season, expect there to be some good from it. On the front end, expect some bad to come from good. I know that sounds depressing, but actually this will lead you to contentment rather than you constantly being disappointed by your covetousness. And by the way, covetousness will always leave you disappointed. Right? Let, me, let me give you some illustrations. Let's practice this. Let's say you're in a new season where you get a new job. It's a good job and it's a high paying job and you're so excited. Okay? Here's what Ecclesiastes is telling us to expect. Expect 
It'll come with opportunity. Expect it'll come with some great perks. Expect to get a higher paycheck. And then it's also telling us to expect that new job will add some new stressors. Don't be so shocked and disappointed when this new job has new annoying people in it. So my old job was filled with annoying people. Welcome to your new job. It's a different kind of annoying, but it's still annoying. New pressure. I was under all this pressure. That's called a job. If you weren't under pressure, that's called a sabbatical, which are great, right? This is a job. They don't pay you to not be under pressure. They're paying you to bury the pressure, to carry the pressure. And so here's the idea, is that we need to learn to go into these seasons with these expectations. If you're getting married, or you're, gonna have, you're having kids, Ecclesiastes is telling us there's so much good in these new relationships. There's going to be laughter and peace and joy. But if you really love them, there's also going to be conflict. There could be some loss. There's going to be some manner of, uh, you have to forgive them at some point or be forgiven by them if you're going to be in love. You, th this is part of it or else it wouldn't be love. And so we have to recalibrate expectations on the front end of good seasons, knowing there will be some toughness in it. We also have to look at tough seasons and do the same. There's going to be some good in it, right? This is not just pessimism. This is not just realism. This is Bible. The idea is that as we go into something that is even difficult, Instead of just saying it's only difficult, we need to learn to go into it going, but there is going to be some good because God is good. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. I want you to listen to me. Because of Jesus, there is grace in everything. There is grace in sickness. With Jesus, there is grace in loss. There is grace in loneliness. You have to be able to expect it, to look for it. There is grace in everything. If you are suffering, expect the Lord to teach you something good through that. If you are being pressed down, expect him to strengthen you and build you up. If you are crying through the night, expect joy to come in the morning. If you die, if you're in Christ, expect eternal life. Hallelujah. Expect good to come from bad and bad to come from good because God already told us that in this broken world, that's life. And he told us like 5,000 years ago. So why are we still surprised 5,000 times a day? By all the little disappointments and difficulties that make us so discontent. And by the way, not only expect it, never stop expecting it. Turn back to Philippians 4. Turn back to Philippians 4. This is almost a sidebar, but I'm going to tell you why you're turning there. But another thing about this poem in Ecclesiastes 3 is that it talks a lot about positive and negative circumstances from early in life to late in life, from birth till death. So I just want you to know that this is birth till death. This cycle, this Ecclesiastes cycle, is never going to end until you get to heaven. You need to expect that. So many people are coveting a day. They are coveting a day that they can somehow outsmart. They get to this day somehow where they outsmart or outwork this Ecclesiastes cycle and there's only pleasantness. Instead of I am content that the gospel brings us to, it's I will be content when I have more than the gospel. 
I will be content when I'm rich or popular or in a relationship or a family or whatever, when I retire. I will be content when this Ecclesiastes cycle is over. And it will be over in heaven, but not until you get there. We need to know this. There is no day coming, no matter what milestone you cross, without Ecclesiastes 3 being at play. I think the reason so many people are discontent is because of the unbiblical stories that we consume. I don't even mean sinful stories, I just mean fictional, non-biblical stories we consume. See, the Bible tells us true stories, and you know they're true because they're the exact opposite of Disney, right? Noah, he gets off the ark, he survives a flood. Question, does he live happily ever after? No! He gets off the ark and he struggles with alcoholism and family drama the rest of his life. Say, so what's that? That's a true story. That's what the Bible wants you to know about life. This cycle is not ending. There are ups, downs, there are good, there's bad, there's laughter and sorrow, life and death. The, the, God is spinning the whole scriptures giving you what to expect, and then it's ruined by like watching Cinderella. Right, if Cinderella was a true story, she would go off to that castle with Prince Charming, and in like five years, she would break her glass slipper over his head because he liked his ex's picture on Instagram. That's a true story. That's real life. And that's the life the Bible tells you to expect in, in sin, in this brokenness. But at a young age, we start seeing stories where someone's suffering and then something happens and they're no longer suffering. And we resonate with that because we're created to resonate with that. All of creation is groaning for that story and we are going to get that story. But it's at the second coming of Christ, not Tuesday. Until that happens and the crowds break open and Jesus comes on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth to take down the devil. You can expect the Ecclesiastes cycle to be intact, whether you're seven or 77. We have to major in expectation, learning expectation, understanding expectation, at least if we're ever going to be content. Look at Philippians 4.12. We have to learn. This is the cycle. Now we got to learn, hey, we got to follow Jesus in the cycle. We got to follow Jesus through both the ups and the downs. Philippians 4.12, I know how to be abased. And I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. There was a third class on learning to be content. I'd say it'd be one of those required internships you have to do to graduate. And the internship would be in adapting. We adapt. We have to learn to adapt to ups and downs. We need to stop doing everything we can to keep the ups up. And we need to stop doing everything we can to change the downs. And we need to put all that energy into walking with Jesus no matter what. Sometimes we're going to have to walk with Jesus in seasons that are hard. And then sometimes we walk with Jesus through seasons that are pleasant. But the point is we're walking with Jesus and everything else we adapt to. 
Paul is saying, I've learned to adapt my walk with Christ to my good seasons and my bad seasons. Now, I think we're more naturally impressed when Paul talks about how he's walking with Christ through the doubts. We're more naturally impressed that he is content, even though he's persecuted, and that no one believes his gospel and his reputation is ruined amongst those he grew up with. We're more naturally impressed that he sings hymns while he's on a chain gang with nothing to eat. But I would submit to you this morning that it may actually be more impressive that he walks with Jesus and stays content in Christ through the ups. Paul walks with Jesus every day, even when things are going well. How many of you have, you have found that it is easy to forget to walk with Jesus when things are going well? That's because we've learned covetousness. Paul has learned to walk with Jesus even when everything's going well, in seasons of success, when everyone's getting saved, and his influence is growing, and the church members invite him over, and he has everything he could ever want to eat. Paul had to learn to adapt his relationship with Christ to his success, which means he had to trust that his truest identity was still in Christ, even when everyone thought he was a hero. I mean, I just tell you, you can tell a lot about the state of your faith, what you really believe is true, the, the state of your trust, your love for Jesus and others when everything is going well. In fact, I would say that's actually when we face the greatest test of our faith. Someone once said, success has destroyed more people than failure ever has. And I would say that that someone was correct. Again, true stories from the Bible. Think about them. King David, after the success of defeating Goliath, after he's crowned, after Saul slayed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. David's supposed to go out to war, but he stays home. He feels safe. He deserves some time off. Being king is great and all, but I need a weekend. And he's at the house and he sins against Bathsheba because, hey, I've done so much difficult things for this country. I deserve something good. He sins against Uriah and totally minimizes his sin maximizes his own importance. Did he do that after some great trial and failure and loss? No, he did that when everything was going great, when he was king, on a throne, and in power, and in wealth. That's when he did all that. That's when it's easiest, sometimes, to do all that. Paul was just a man. Paul was just like David. Paul could have fallen and if he had, my guess is Paul would have been the type of guy to fall in the season of plenty and success, like in Ephesus in Acts 19. Have you read Acts 19? It is crazy. In Ephesus, Paul goes in there, and he preaches the gospel so powerfully, so many people get saved, that they have this burn party, like a Christian camp on a Friday night. They literally are tossing their sorcery books and their, their, their dark arts and their magic into this pile and burning it at this riot in, es in Ephesus. He finds himself successful as a minister. I mean, he's the leader of a mass movement. In Ephesus, in Acts 19, all Paul has to do is touch a handkerchief. 
They take that handkerchief and touch it to the sick, and the sick are healed. Everybody wants to be Paul in Acts 19. Everybody wants to be Paul in Ephesus. In fact, in Acts 19, there's a story about these seven sons of Sceva, which is an awesome band name. But anyway, um, seven sons of Sceva. It does. Doesn't it sound like a metal band or something? Anyway, so, not that that's good. But anyway, so... Seven sons of Sceva go try to do exorcisms just like Paul, and the demons talk back to him and says, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? They're wannabes. Everybody wanted to be Paul. I mean, his ministry in Ephesus got so successful, it was so big, it fundamentally changed the economy because no one was buying little silver idols anymore. And he could have pulled out David, but he says, I learned to abound. I learned to walk with Jesus, even in the seasons of success. I mean, he could have fallen. He could have fallen in not only to sin, but despair. A lot of times, the lowest valleys, they, they come up to those highest mountaintops. I, uh, I've been really into boxing lately. I know that might come um, as a surprise to some of you who think I'm talking about eating boxes of donuts, but I have been into boxing lately. I've been going to a trainer, super fun. Dan came with me once. That was a hoot. <laughs> now, to be clear, I'm only doing the workout side of boxing. I haven't actually been punched, so that might change my tune a little bit, but it's been fun to go to boxing, watch boxing. There's a boxer named Tyson Fury. He's the world heavyweight champion, and he's doing really well these days. In fact, he's welcome to Jesus, but he tried to kill himself in 2015. He tried to take his life. He said, why did he try to take his life? Did he lose? No, he won. He won. It drove him to despair because he had been training to be the heavyweight title champion since he was a little kid. And he did it almost like on first try against a guy he was never supposed to be able to beat. Whoever he beat, I can't remember his name, held it 25 times. He defended his title 25 times. This kid, Tyson Fury, well, he's, he's a kid, I guess, but he's like the size of you know, Montana. But anyway, he goes and he beats this guy like first try and he wins the world heavyweight championship, the thing he's always wanted to do. And he literally says, you can listen to him say this in an interview about that time in 2015, that as he was heading home to go to bed, he literally could not think of a single reason to wake up the next day. Because everything he'd been waking up for was done. And he's only, at the time, 27. His identity was wrapped up in being the heavyweight champion so that when he became the heavyweight champion, there was nothing left to do. And it drove him mad. Almost killed himself. He went into drugs and alcohol. Why? Because he won. You see, you have to understand, you're going to have to learn to adapt to abundance because some of your life will be abundant. You will find some triumph. There will be some victory. And everything in you is going to want to put all your eggs in that basket and make that your walk with God instead of an actual walk with God. Paul says, I've learned to adapt, to take my walk with Christ into success. He did this. This is what this means. He learned to remember. When everyone thought he was the chief of the church, he learned to remember, uh, I'm just the chief of sinners. This is all thanks to Jesus. He learned to accept not only thriving in the flesh, but to accept the thorn in the flesh, which tied him to his need for Jesus. 
He learned to be honored without learning his or leaving behind his humility. I'm just a bond slave to Jesus, he would always say. He learned to pray. Even when there wasn't a massive burden he wanted off of his shoulders, have you learned to pray in the morning even when it's going to be a great day? You've got to learn to read the scriptures even when you're not searching for life's greatest answers, the greatest questions because your questions have been answered. you still got to learn to walk with Jesus, to adapt your walk with Christ to the good times. Like Paul, we must, must, must Anchor our identity to the good news, not just a good time. Or else the good times will kill us. Can you adapt? Can you survive failure? Can you do it? Can you walk with Christ through success? Can you survive loss? Can you believe in gain? Can you walk with Jesus downhill? Can you walk with Jesus uphill? Can you worship on your worst day? Can you worship on your best day? The answer is yes. Yes, by God's grace, you can. Because this is where we get to verse 13. This is the final class. This is your grad degree, your PhD, the PhD we all need. In trust, look at verse 13 now with that context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is good news. This is the gospel. The good news that you can and you must trust in. It starts with this. You can do nothing without Christ strengthening you. Without Christ, you are in your sin. And you are a covetous mess who will never feel content. You have broken his commandment. You are heading for destruction. And on your own and in your sin, you are not content. You are covetous. Nothing can satisfy you. But God loves you anyway. And God sends his son Jesus to earth to live the life that you could never live. Jesus lived a life of total and complete contentment for you. He was born in a manger. He grew up in poverty. During his ministry, he had nowhere to lay his head. He was essentially a couch surfer. Yet he was content. He knew he was heading for the cross. That lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. And yet in his success, he never stopped heading towards Golgotha. When thousands of people were clawing their way to touch the hem of his garment, he stayed with his face towards the cross, content to die for the millions. When no one appreciated him, and the Pharisees questioned him, and the governments accused him, and Rome had him crucified, he stayed on the cross, content to die for you. Jesus was content to die for your covetousness and give you something way better for it. The Holy Spirit. He rose again, he ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to all who believe, and that means you 
We said this at the beginning of the service when we quoted the Apostles' Creed. The Holy Spirit comes down to his church from God the Father through Jesus Christ. He seals us to the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit fills us and empowers us through the ups and the downs of life. He convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. He guides us into all truth. He strengthens us to walk with Jesus through everything, through ups and downs. In the downs, the Holy Spirit comes to you, and he strengthens you through his word and through others in the church. He strengthens you through his power. Trust this, whether you feel it or not, see it coming or not. He does. He strengthens you by reminding you, Jesus gave it all for you. You're forgiven. You are loved. You are adopted. You are under grace. You are headed for eternal life. Listen to his voice in the downs. Accept that he's, he's there for your strength to endure. Whether you can see it or not, you trust it. Jesus gives us strength through the ups, the Holy Spirit. He comes to us through the word and through others in the church. Through his power, he reminds us, Jesus is the one who gives us the ups. Thank Jesus. Don't abandon Jesus. Thank Jesus. Don't idolize the ups. Your God is above the highest mountain. Worship him. Do not forget him. He comes to us in our ups and he says, this is your opportunity to serve with all that you've been given. This is your opportunity to take this great blessing, whatever it might be, and give it away. You have to trust that there are enough ups to go around because God is good. And he's good to you. Whatever season we're in, the Holy Spirit, this is good news and this is true. Whatever season we're in, through the word, through others at church, through his power, the Holy Spirit gives us the strength to walk like, talk like, act like, live like, be like, worship Jesus. He gives us the strength to be content rather than be covetousness. That's what it means when you read, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I can be content. So, don't trust the downs. The downs want to come to you. They tell you, it's good. be afraid. They tell you, your life's over. They tell you, there's nothing good coming your way. God's forgotten about you. Don't trust the downs. Trust Jesus. And do not trust the ups. The ups tell you, hey, you gotta hold on to this. The, the ups tell you there's a way to make this last forever. The ups tell you this is because you earned it and you deserve it. Don't trust the ups. Trust Jesus. Will you trust Jesus this morning? Will you value him above all else? Will you tie your thankfulness solely to him and his gospel? I started the sermon by asking you if you were content. It's a convicting question. Well, we're gonna end with a convicting question, the third one for the morning, because most of our answer answers were no at the beginning of the sermon. Here's the last question. Through this text, the question kind of changes. Will you start learning to be content? 
Because you're going to be learning one of two things. Covetousness or contentment. With all the days of your life. And I want you that I, in Jesus, want to learn to say, I am content. In fact, let's say that on three. We're going to say, I am content. One, two, three. I am content. Let's say it again. One, two, three. I am content. Say it one more time. One, two, three, as loud as you can. I am content. Let's learn. Let's learn to be able to say that. Not only on this morning, but any morning. Because on this morning and every morning, if you have Jesus, you have it all. And all that people said, 